Okay, thank you everyone. Welcome to this Institute for Government event looking at how a Labour government would work with the civil service. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. Now the relationship between the civil service and ministers has been under strain for some time now. From Dominic Cummings' criticisms of the civil service, to Partygate, to most recently the abrupt sacking of Tom Scholar, the then Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, and things have been rather rocky. Um, now, incoming governments can be a chance to reset the relationship, um, but incoming governments can also be instinctively suspicious about the civil service, who have often spent a long time working for a previous regime. Um, so how should a newly elected Labour cabinet hit the ground running and use the civil service as effectively as possible? And how should it approach the relationship with the civil service? And perhaps, most importantly, what kind of civil service will the next government inherit? Brexit and COVID saw the civil service grow. Since then, Johnson and now Liz Truss's government have plans to cut it back. So what should Labour do about its size and shape? We've got um, a truly excellent panel with us today to discuss this. Uh, Hilary Benn has been a Labour MP for Leeds Central since 1999. And um, a long list of impressive former roles include time spent as Secretary of State in DEFRA, Secretary of State at DFID, Shadow Foreign Secretary, and he's currently the Chair of the Committee on the Future Relationship with the European Union. We've got... Dame Margaret Hodge, who has been the Labour MP for Barking since 1994. She served as a Minister for Culture and Tourism, for Industry in the Regions, for Work, for Children and for Universities. <laughs> Incredible. Um, and Margaret was Chair of the Public Accounts Committee before Meg. Which brings me on to uh, Dame Meg Hillier, who's been the Labour MP for Hackney South and Shoreditch since 2005. Uh, she was a Parliamentary Undersecretary of State in the Home Office, has been Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change and is the current Chair of the Public Accounts Committee. And then we have our very own Alex Thomas. Alex leads the Institute for Government's work on policymaking in the civil service. He was previously a senior civil servant in DEFRA, uh, the Department of Health and Cabinet Office. Um, he was principal private secretary to Sir Jeremy Haywood. And he was once a private secretary to none other than Hilary Benn. Uh, the circle <laughs> goes round. <laughs> Um, so we're going to start the event with some opening remarks from the panel, then we'll uh, have some discussion amongst ourselves and I'll make sure that I leave a good 25 minutes or so from questions from our very large audience as I know there's lots that you'll want to ask um, and then we'll aim to finish by quarter to six. And for those of you using Twitter, the hashtag is IFGLab22. Alex, I'm going to come to you first. Um, start by telling us what kind of state the civil service is in um, how has it coped over the last few years? What might a Labour government inherit? And what kind of approach should Labour take to the civil service? Thanks, Emma, and uh, uh, great to be here. Uh, really good to see so many people enthused about the civil service uh, uh, at uh, the Labour Party conference. So this is, this is great for us. Um, what sort of state is the civil service in? I think it's battered and bruised. I think it's a bit frustrated. Um, a week ago, I would have channeled my natural optimism and thought that a um, uh, incoming uh, new Liz Truss government could offer a direction and a bit of clarity and uh, some reduction in some of the sort of contradictory and um, uh, slightly conflicting uh, objectives of the previous administration. Uh, and that still may be true, but, um, uh, but I think that has um, uh, drained some of the possible optimism of the civil service responding well to a clear sense of direction away. But I do still think that there are uh, opportunities for the civil service, particularly in terms of reinforcing the importance of good policy making, of the use of evidence, of expertise, of knowledge, of using the civil service in a good way. And I think there are lessons that ministers and civil service could draw out of the events of the last few days um, about that. 
I think um, civil service remains a bit unsettled uh, internally about its kind of, sort of the collective leadership of the civil service itself, particularly the Partygate um, uh, uh, sort of series of events and what that said about the senior leadership, the civil service. I'm not just talking about sort of the cabinet secretary and people in number 10, but the sort of collective strength and authority of the, of the civil service. Um, and I think the civil service itself, certainly the more thoughtful parts of it, are actually really looking for reform. They're fed up with um, some of the more sort of superficial or scapegoating um, <coughs> interventions that we might have seen over uh, recent months and years, and they're looking for a proper plan of reform. I think the more thoughtful bits of the civil service realise it's an existential problem. The civil service can only really draw its legitimacy from its effectiveness, and if it's not as effective as it might be, that's a, that's a problem for the civil service. Um, you asked about uh, what an incoming... Labour government might do. I, I came up. I was thinking earlier. I came up with I think three do's and two don'ts. So my my first do is encourage speaking truth to power. Um, uh, the civil <coughs> service, far from being the kind of obstructionist uh, um, kind of vehicle that some incoming ministers might uh, think, the civil service will mostly be far too desperate to please. So I think a message because they will want to get their you know, sort of credibility. Um, uh, high and to re relationships off to a good start. So uh, a real encouragement to speak truth to power and to encourage honest advice, even if it's then disagreed with or overridden, would be a good thing. Um, my second do is don't ignore civil service reform. That's a don't, isn't it? Sorry, do reform civil service reform. <laughs> do, do think about how to reform the civil service. It's important for the effectiveness of government in the country that it's uh, working well. And also it needs that... Um, the civil service finds it hard, I think, to reform itself. It needs the ministerial political grit in the oyster to, um, uh, to uh, direct it to, to change and improve. Um, my third do uh, is to um, work out what you want to do, what your objectives are, and to then task the civil service clearly with, uh, uh, with achieving it and to set up the centre of government in order to support doing that. So take a bit of time in the first two weeks, the first month of an incoming administration to do a sort of, you know, coalition programme for government, dare I say, style programme for government that helps the, the ministers and then the civil service prioritise, uh, deal with competing things that might be coming out of the manifesto uh, and so on. So come up with a programme, dip all the cabinet ministers' hands in it and then, um, and then task the civil service with get, getting on with it. Two don'ts. Don't abandon things that have worked just because they're associated with the previous government. Uh, the IFG, we've been talking a lot about the highly sort of techie and, um, to many people, boring uh, outcome delivery plans. Um, but we think they, you know, that sort of thing works. You need a way of keeping track of government business. If a delivery unit in number 10 is working, don't just scrap it. Um, uh, 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 build on it. And the second don't is... Um, don't put the, particularly if a Labour government uh, it finds itself in a minority uh, in Parliament, don't put the civil service in the middle of that debate. Uh, try and uh, let politicians resolve politics and let civil servants get on with the things the civil service is best at. I will leave it there. Thank you very much, Alex. Lots of sage advice. And Meg, I'm going to come to you next. You've scrutinised permanent secretaries um, and other senior officials at uh, the Public Accounts Committee. What do you make of uh, the kind of quality, the enthusiasm, the skills you've seen in the civil service over the last few years? And given what you've seen, um, what thoughts do you have about what a Labour government might want to do to the civil service in power? Well, I've actually been on the committee now for 10 years. I'm the first uh, four under Margaret as chair and uh, seven now as chair myself. So I think it will be depressing for Margaret 
<laughs> me to tell when she hears what I've got to say because I think some of it hasn't changed much. But look, one of the key things is there's been a very high turnover of uh, permanent secretaries. So in the seven years that I've been chair, there's only one permanent secretary. It's a good pub quiz question for civil service nerds. Uh, um, actually, Alex might not, should not, I should test him. <laughs> there's only one permanent secretary who's still in post from when I was first became chair uh, in 2015. Can you, do you know who that is? Is it Mark? Chris? Yes. Chris Wilmold. Yes, Chris Wilmold. And he's changed departments. Every other permanent secretary has changed over some more than once. And that means we're losing valuable experience. Um, but when they're replaced, they're not actually replaced with very different types of people. They are from very similar educational backgrounds, very similar skill sets. So basically, you're replacing an experienced Mandarin who's been around the block politically with a small p with inexperienced Mandarins. And as one former uh, permanent secretary put it to me, you know, the danger is that some of those people are courtesans who want to say yes to power. Because, and also, some of them are not particularly naming any individuals here, but the three have been sacked. Richard Heaton, Jonathan Slater at Education. Um, that was, uh, well, one could, uh, Gavin Williamson should have been the one that was sacked, in my view, by a long way. Um, and Tom Scholar, all three actually very, very capable permanent secretaries, and all went. And Tom Scholar, particularly, in a rushed, I mean, in a very, a, a, we, we could have a whole debate about how ridiculous that was, uh, especially with what happened on Friday. So I think that's the, one of the challenges, that, that we're losing experience. Um, there are, in terms of their quality, it, I mean, actually, that's, it is the experience that really determines, I think, the quality partly. Um, and there's this whole um, pipeline of people coming through, which brings me to the changes that I think need to be made. First of all, I'd say not too much, not too radical all at once, because if we got into power, if we get in in 24, let's say, We'll have five years to deliver a very big program, as Keir's just laid out, and there's lots more of the day-to-day -day stuff in government that needs to be delivered. And if you're turning everything over and get making people anxious about their jobs, just the headcount threats of this, well, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the current government is causing a lot of wobble across the civil service. You've got to have some stability, but each within each department, you can look at various things. And so I'd say one upgrade at the junior level and empower people and some departments pay people very low wages and we're expecting them to make very big decisions about immigration cases and so on and I think we need to really look at that and work with our trade union colleagues to make sure that we've got people empowered to work at a higher level and increase productivity partly through that way. A big focus on delivery and procurement, which the civil service, I'm afraid to say, still does very badly, um, very often, very much focused on the wrong things um, because, because you get promoted because of your policy uh, maker and a policy uh, wonk, not because you're good at delivery necessarily. And that brings me to the why the promotion. We need to be promoting people with specialist skills. Actually, why are we always still getting permanent secretaries appointed? You've never delivered a major project, um, and they're, they're being appointed. And I would say reform the fast stream so that you're actually not just recruiting people with good degrees from Oxbridge or other top universities, but you're bringing people in with specialist skills around tech, digital uh, procurement. I mean, there's a, there's a list of which. Margaret, remember those early days when you were on the chair of the committee? We talked about it then. We're still talking about it now. A little has changed, but it is going very slowly. And I think the civil service needs to work with a new Labour government to see how we can just speed some of that up a bit and actually have a change of culture. Um, but I say speed up, but not, you can't do it overnight, and so you shouldn't try and do that. And then, of course, there's still a challenge that will, we will, um, we, you know, people talk about no money being left, or, or that was famously said. It was a joke by Liam Byrne. There was a mo lot more money left then than there will be after Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have had their raised earth policy and taken money out of the public sector. And let's not, let's be clear, 
their tax cuts mean cuts to public services, and cuts to public services actually mean a lot of civil servants. You look at places with like DWP, um, Home Office with an immigration service, um, HMRC, these are large numbers of people, and if, if they're going to have to make savings, uh, which it, even when we're in power, much as we won't want to cut people, there's going to be a real challenge about how we balance that. So that's a, a, a challenge. I'm not saying, well, I don't know what we'll do on that at this point, but that's a challenge we will be facing because there will be less money in the pot. Thanks, Meg. Um, so many important points we want to pick up in, in there on delivery, also turnover, something that the Institute has written a lot about um, at the top of the civil service. Hilary, I want to come to you next. Um, you were a minister in three really quite different departments. And um, what was the kind of best and the worst of the civil service that you saw uh, in those experiences? And it, how would you learn from it? Long way from Alex. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing, uh, thanks very much. The first thing to say, and this is not shameless flattery given the audience, it was a privilege to work with some absolutely yes. fantastic civil servants. Yes. You know, a complete joy. They all had different cultures. Now, I began as a special advisor in education and employment with Margaret. Now, when David Blunkett came in, literacy and numeracy strategy, um, there was no one in the department at the time who had the skills to do it, because it was about going out to school saying, come on, come on, come on, we're going to do this. And so the, uh, the unit was established, headed by Michael Barber. And there was not a reflection on civil servants. You were asking them to do something that they hadn't been asked to do before. And more and more, well, governments are interested in delivery, and therefore you prize doers, people who can make stuff happen, rather than write excellent papers about how it might happen, but when you pull the levers, you discover that there may be nothing connected. Um, I think that's the, the first point. The Home Office, well, that was... You remember Charles Clarke's famous yeah. saying, the thing about the Home Office is at any one moment there are ten civil servants doing something that if it goes wrong will result in you having to resign. Yeah. So it creates a certain culture of... Uh, reticence, caution, so on. But I wanted to pick up Alex's point about speaking truth to power, because it's absolutely vital as a minister you get the relationship right with your civil servants. I inherited the policy on sex offences as a junior Home Office minister. And one of the policies I inherited was if you were a carer and you fell in love with your person you were caring for and had sex with them, you would be committing a criminal offence. And I'm not talking about people with learning disabilities or vulnerable in other ways. Uh, I'm talking about what I just described. And I sat down with the team responsible, and I said, now, on this policy, I'm really not persuaded that this is a terribly good idea. What do you think? <coughs> and I was greeted by this blank look from all of them around the table. And the lead official said to me, Minister, what, what do you mean, what do we think? <laughs> I said, well, what do you think? I mean, just go, let's go around the table. And do, tell me why you think this is a good policy, or do you think it perhaps it isn't? And lo and behold, we went around the table, and nobody in the room thought it was a terribly good policy, <laughs> but it had been inherited from my predecessor, so it disappeared from the draft uh, sexual uh, offences bill. And I know from my time at DEFRA, when I had the huge privilege of working with Alex, most of the officials, almost all, who were advising me on badger culling, which is famous <laughs> in the civil service for being the ultimate nightmare issue to have land on your table. Uh, David Miliband passed it to me, and I should have said, very interesting, I think we need more research, and hoped I was out, <laughs> was out the advice before of the, time, the research came back. But I made the mistake of telling the NFU I would take a decision. But most of the officials disagreed with the decision that I took. But I said to them, it's really, really important you put all the arguments as to why I'm wrong to me, because the worst thing is if civil servants know they disagree, but 
don't test you out. Because believe you me, when I stood up in the House of Commons, I sure got it in the neck from people who fundamentally disagreed with me. And you know, being challenged, being honest with each other, recognising in the end the minister decides. Um, and if you're new in a department, my dad always used to joke, he'd arrive and the civil servants would question him. And then they would say, Minister, Minister, we only wish to know which way your mind is moving. <laughs> and he would say, if only they knew my, my mind is stationary because I've only just turned up. And that, make, that comes to the point that, um, that uh, 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 Meg just made about turnover of permanent civil servants. Turnover of ministers is bad for government. Yeah. Uh, because turnover of ministers means... I mean, all, all, all departments have a thing that they'd like to get a minister to approve, and they couldn't persuade the last one. Uh, poor old Caroline Spellman got lumbered with selling off the forests. And, you know, the Treasury was trying it before, bless them, and she got done over it. Um, and if you have time as a minister, you work out what you think. It's different if you've come in with a manifesto. This is really important, because when you come in with a manifesto, having been out for yonks, you have the access talks... And the civil servants understand what it is you want, what the plan is, what builds, and so on. And you can kind of get raring and started. <coughs> it's different when you come in after a period of time. Uh, ministers need to concentrate on a small number of things, and you have to keep pushing it, keep pushing it, in order to um, make it uh, happen. And a DEFRA, oh, I think of the civil servants who drafted the climate change bill, which I introduced uh, to the House of Commons, world-leading legislation, the Marine and Coastal Access Act, the creation of the final national park. And DFID was probably more full of passionate civil servants who came in with master's degrees to do admin jobs because they wanted to work in international development and the current government, to make a party political point, has utterly trashed our reputation, the department. I'm so pleased that Kieran Preet have said, when we get back in, we're going to have an international mm. development department. Again, which Labour governments always have to do, because Tory governments in the end always scrap it and cut the aid budget. Here endeth the lecture. <laughs> Thank you, Hilary. Um, Margaret, I'm going to come to you now. Uh, so I want to talk a bit now about how the civil service is held to account. This is something we've talked a lot about at the Institute for Government. Is there something missing in the link between the civil service and parliament? Are officials sometimes too keen to hide behind ministers or is it actually the other way around? Um, I am going to answer that question, I promise you, but I'm just going to do a couple of reflections to start. The first thing is, I think the most important... Can you hear me? Is that better? The, mo the, the most important lesson I learned from all our years in government was that uh, the Prime Minister has to take uh, implementation and therefore the role of the civil service seriously. Mm. And if, if you don't get that leadership from the top, uh, all the reforms, both to the civil service and to the ministers and the way they interrelate, they just, you will not deliver. Not, not, nobody will deliver. And the really depressing thing is that I don't think in my political lifetime there's ever been a prime minister who has taken the civil service seriously. And the second thing I want to say, which is a serious reflection, I've, I've done a lot of work over the last decade on uh, financial crime and how that has led into corruption of our public services and, uh, uh, and our politics. Um, and we've seen it in spades under Johnson. But the interesting thing and the scary thing about the Johnson regime was that um, the civil service, a free, independent civil service, is an absolutely central pillar 
that protects our democracy alongside Parliament, alongside a free press, and alongside the rule of law. And what the Johnson government did in spades was every time anybody dared talk through to power, they'd find themselves sacked or moved. <clears throat> Uh, and uh, I think all the sackings of permanent secretaries that we've seen in the Johnson era is really scary. And there's one thing Labour has got to do, is we have got to ensure that the civil service is in a position where it can defend democracy for everybody who's outside politics uh, and act as that balance and that truth to power. So that's the thing. Now, going to your question, um, uh, I think we have a system in the UK... Uh, which I, a, a conclusion I came to after I'd done the Public Accounts Committee, which is broke. And that is the code, what is known as the Code of Ministerial Responsibility. So theoretically, civil servants are accountable to ministers and ministers to parliament. And that makes it incredibly difficult if you're looking at implementation, for example. It makes it incredibly difficult to actually find out what went wrong and therefore what you need to change to put things right. It's never, never clear. I mean, it's a little bit the Charles Clark sort of sentiment. There are 10 people doing stuff that I will, in the end, be responsible for. But you can see it the other way round. I think the Jonathan Slater example is very good. Jonathan Slater got sacked for deficiencies in Gavin Williams. Absolutely. For nothing that he'd done as a civil servant. It was all that the politics got done. And Charles Clark actually lost his job for the deficiencies of the civil service. So this code, which means that you think that civil servants can only re uh, report through uh, ministers to parliament, is a broken code, which doesn't allow you to uh, have proper transparency and accountability. And without that transparency and accountability, you won't get effective use of taxpayers' money and effective delivery uh, of service. So I think we should scrap it. And I think we should open up in a much greater way the way in which our civil service operates. And I take local government as our example. In local government, the chief executive and the finance officer, the chief finance officer, can report directly to council. So if there is a political debate about whether a policy is a good idea or not, not a very good idea, that, that debate is held, it, held in open. And that's healthy. You probably come to a better decision about what, you know, what to do in that way. And I see absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be open, much greater openness with civil servants being much more directly accountable to the public through Parliament, uh, and that whole policy debate being revealed in the open. They hate it. The ministers hate it, and the civil servants hate it. Everybody hates it, because that cloak of secrecy provides some, they think, some sort of protection. I think it leads to poor policy making, uh, things being taken, bad decisions being taken and not being thought through, and poor executive implementation. So that would be, and, and it's a very controversial view to have. Every time I say it, the perm sex go potty. But I just genuinely think if we don't have a, a, a radical reform like that, um, uh, uh, it, we won't make progress. I want to just say some other things about, about accountability. I do think the permanent secretaries, it's slightly changed, ironically, under the Conservative government. The permanent secretaries come from a very limited cadre. It's like a Freemasonry to me. You tend to go to, you know, you, you tend to go to Oxbridge, you then come into the civil service, and you're, you're chosen from it. 
from within. And I think, Hillary, our experience when we were in government, and I might have improved a little bit, if you ever did bring people in from the outside, it was very difficult for them to settle and progress because they were rejected by, the, by, the, uh, by those who'd sort of made a career, career out of it. So I think opening up the civil service much to the skills that exist in other bits of the public sector, whether it be local government or health, or that exist in the private sector is very important. I also think this issue of uh, uh, people being in a job for two years is crazy. The only way in which you get promoted is if you get a new job after two years. There is no, there is no uh, regard and value given to people who uh, who implement contracts, for example. You you can you know you get a lot for deciding you're going to privatise the probation service. You get nothing for actually being the poor civil servants then responsible for the catastrophe that was that uh, ridiculously not thought out policy. Um, uh, and so, and then I just want to say two other things. There's not three other things. One is that there's been an abuse by the Conservatives of the use of uh, non-executive uh, non direct, de directors on departments. Those have become political appointments. We brought that role in, uh, and I think that would have helped accountability. It would have helped uh, strengthen executive uh, performance, but it's been so politicised um, uh, that uh, see Matt Hancock as the classic example of it all. It's been so politicised that that um, I think it's diminished that. Uh, and then the um, other thing is, I think there is a debate to be had between the balance between political appointees and civil service appointees. And I think we should also think about that in terms of accountability. There are more and more political appointments. I mean, Hillary, I first met Hillary when he was a political advisor to David Blunkett. And there were three of you? Two or, th two of you, two or three of you in the department. Um, now there are sort of tons floating around. Now you can see why, because ministers do want to get their, uh, their values and their policies implemented, and they feel somehow that the civil servants uh, oppose that. But equally, I think we haven't had an open discussion about that, an open debate, and come to a rational view as to where the balance lies. And the final thing I want to say is I worked with <coughs> tons of absolutely fabulous civil servants. Um, the ones I hated were the ones who said, yes, minister. The ones I really loved were the ones who said, you've got this completely wrong, Margaret. Um, and I think there was something in that. But I, I'm, I'm going to leave you with a story which sort of showed some of the frustrations that you sometimes see as a politician. So I, one of the many jobs, because um, uh, Tony Blair was terrible at moving us all, almost every year. I think every summer you thought you'd be moved. Uh, I, I ended up in, in, in a department for culture, and I had responsibility for uh, uh, the boards of all the, our national institutions, uh, like the British Museum and the National Opera House. And when I got there, um, only a quarter, 26% of the people appointed were women. So I thought this was absolutely outrageous. And we set about, all we did was we, we compiled a list of 500 women who the civil servants, just my address book and everybody else's address book, <laughs> but just put out there, there are women who are capable of doing this. And I had a meeting with all the chairs in which I said, if they put forward a man for my confirmation, I'd turn it down. That was the only thing I did. And within a year, actually, they'd appointed a lot of Tory women, but they appointed, we'd got it up to 46% in a year. I then had to take a year off of uh, compassionate leave because my husband was ill. And I came back to the job. Gordon Brown 
put me back in the job after, after he died. I came back to the job and the number was back at 26%. And that actually demonstrated to me the ephemeral nature of politics, the ephemeral nature of our influence, and the actually huge power of the civil service in ensuring good governance in all our interests. Thank you, Margaret. Something that's come up in almost every uh, comment is the fact that there are lots of similar types of person um, who become permanent secretary. And I think a similar argument's been made by the current government about the Treasury, that there are lots of similar types of civil servants in the Treasury. Um, so I'd be really interested to know what this panel make of claims that the Treasury is too orthodox, um, has one type of thinking, and would you, do you think that a Labour government should be making any changes to the Treasury? Mm. Who wants to... Jump in first, Meg. Uh, well, yes, it is actually, and I have. Um, in fact, I I had said this to Tom Scholar. I said when I went and did sometimes talks to young civil servants, and I sometimes do double handers with the then head of HMRC, and I said they all look very similar. Tom, they're kind of young, white, now a few more females. So, so it's getting, getting a little. That was diversity in the Treasury, and he recognised this was an issue. So. Um, one of my little contributions to helping educate them was to uh, get them to come to my surgery and see what the reality of life was like when two public policies hit uh, a poor a individual and they don't work very well. And that was, actually was quite eye-opening for them. Um, but when the first young man came, I said, do you want me to introduce you as on work experience or the man from the Treasury? But frankly, he was so young uh, that we did went with the on work experience because it, 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 it and that, but that was the, one of the challenges. So it's a problem that actually Tom Scholar recognised. I know, in, and I've been doing some work actually about with women in the civil service just to sort of try and promote a better, um, well, to help help on experience really. But I think that is a big problem, and and it, we know that any institution that's run, the more diverse the the people who run it the better it is, but that diversity needs to also come from the grassroots up. So the civil servants service as a whole, um, when I've gone and talked to them on gender, it's got a lot better, but not in lots of high levels, Not it sort of stops at a certain level. On ethnic diversity, it is woeful, and that is a real issue. And you think about, just, I'll just take one example, you know, Islamic mortgages or something. I mean, this is, these, are, these are things that we need to, you, you have to have people around the table who understand that sort of uh, issue if you're going to be making policy, um, and, and we don't. So I think there is a real challenge there um, about how we recruit and where we recruit our young civil servants from, as well as the mandarins. Thank you. Henry? Uh, <clears throat> yes, if I could. Um, I hope they fixed the tables in the Treasury. I remember going to see Paul Boateng once and to discuss spending. And every time I put my elbows on the table, it went like this. And was I was sure that it was probably bad maintenance. I thought it was a deliberate psychological ploy so that in the room, nothing was certain at all. Um, and that's just a passing comment. Look, the Treasury's... I, I used to joke, and it's half true, if you said to some Treasury civil service, do we actually need an agriculture industry in Britain? They might say, well, from a, a purely economic point of view, probably not, because we can always go shopping in the global supermarket. Now, uh, I think that is a profound mistake for a whole host of reasons that I won't go into any more than saying, well, we don't need large stocks of personal protective equipment because we can always go shopping on Amazon. And I think one of the lessons, uh, one of the shortcomings of that orthodox view um, based on a globalised world is there are things, sectors, industries, capabilities 
that are strategic and essential to a country. Uh, you have to be able to uh, feed yourself, because who knows what happens to food supply in the rest of the world. When I was DEFRA secretary, a drought in Australia put up the price of bread in Britain. So that is an example of the interdependence of us as, uh, as, uh, as human beings. That includes defence capability. You know, have we got enough steel to build new ships to replace ships that might get sunk if there were a conflict? And uh, it's all about balance. You know, in life, everything is about striking the right balance. And so my observation uh, from my dealings with the Treasury over the years is that they have a view, and they can argue it in one sense, but there are other views, and it's important. It'd be better if those were reflected in the Treasury when it's taking decisions or trying to do things than other ministers having to say, well, hang on a minute, you haven't thought about this, that, and the other. Thank you. Margaret. Um, I, I'm going to do the, the uh, radical thing. I mean, the first thing, I don't know if this figure is true, Meg, still, but uh, when I was at PAC, the turnover of civil servants in the Treasury was something like 75% a year. I think it's quite that high, but it's high. It's much higher than the, than the rest of the civil service. Because system. young kids come in, and then they get massive salary increases from the big four, yeah. or the banks, and they go off and do that. So it, it's, a, it's a very, you know, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a department full of very bright young things with not a lot of knowledge. I yes. hope I'm not being no, rude. I, is there a Treasury civil servant in the, in the room? No. I'll, I'll come in a minute and do my, <laughs> do my bit to... Uh... Actually, I was going to... I think my experience of Treasury as a minister was that they were supposed to sort of allocate funds to you and then leave you alone. And they never left you alone. They got totally immersed in the detail. And with these young things who didn't really understand how how... The world worked. It was the, one of the most frustrating aspects of ministerial. I, I had responsibility for implementing the Children's Centre, Sure Start Children's Centre program. So we got masses of money, masses of money, which we were and we were trying to roll this out as a national program. It was a huge, huge effort, and the, this, these people from the Treasury drove me completely potty with a total failure to understand what it actually meant to establish a short art centre in a community in a community in Liverpool. So that was deeply irritating. And, um, um, I, and I think there should be greater... And the other thing is that they wouldn't allow, and they still don't allow, any... Uh, they want to control everybody penny. So uh, in my little world of, uh, of uh, dirty money, you could act... We are absolutely useless at uh, chasing the, the, the baddies. Um, they get away with, you know, which is why Britain's become the jurisdiction of choice for dirty money. If we just funded the uh, National Crime Agency and the Serious Fraud Office and the police and HMRC properly, they do, we could actually bear down on it. We could do that out of the fines that they then collect. But the idea of Treasury giving up its power and allowing these agencies to use the money they collect to expand and extend their services wrong. So my radical solution to all of this is I would actually completely tear up the way we organize the center of government, because uh, you have three competing departments and a heck of a lot of energy is expended on them rowing with each other for power and control. You have number 10, you have the cabinet office, and you have treasury. And I think you should have one big, and it also leads to the 
to the tensions that we certainly suffered under between um, uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. So I would, you need a macroeconomic capability, and I think that has, should be separate, um, possibly not run by Kwasi Kwarteng, um, in the interests of everybody in the community. Uh, but you then, I think the rest, I would create one department at the centre, bringing together Cabinet Office, the Prime Minister, and the, data, the public expenditure part of Treasury. And then you'd stop the rows between them and you'd have that expertise under the boss, under the Prime Minister. Uh, and I think you could see, uh, again, a much sort of uh, tighter, better grasp on how we spend the money uh, and proper political control of that rather than the endless, endless waste of time and energy and money in uh, the fights that inevitably occurred, I think, right throughout our yes, period in government uh, between those two. Former minister, <laughs> <laughs> as you will have noticed. Nothing wrong with that. Alex, what do you make of uh, Margaret's proposals to tear up the uh, structures at the centre oh, of one big department? Well, tre yeah, Treasury. Well, first, um, I am no defender of Treasury orthodoxy, but I would just say that if we'd had a little bit more Treasury orthodoxy, orthodoxy over the last week, and perhaps a little bit less unorthodoxy um uh we might have uh, no i take that point but it, but we might have um uh we might have done uh, better but on the uh center of government i think actually i think margaret's argument has has a lot going for it the thing that uh, always struck me from i never worked in the treasury but i worked in the cabinet office and close to number 10 uh and as emma said with jeremy haywood was one of the things that Jeremy Hayward was able to do was act as a bit of a number 10 counterbalanced uh, counterbalance to the Treasury. So Jeremy, with a big economic brain and uh, coming from that sort of background, was able to be the Prime Minister's principal advisor on matters economic and uh, financial. And um, it struck me that requires a sort of deafness because there is a real risk of setting up competing power centres and all sorts of tensions between number 10 uh, and number 11 Downing Street, but a Prime Minister needs uh, uh, needs some of the institutional heft that the Treasury gives a Chancellor, I think. And so whether it's Margaret's solution or something else, I think there's something to be, to be said for that. I also think that links a little bit to the point I made very briefly earlier about having a programme for government <coughs> and clear priorities. Uh, if you've got a Cabinet that is broadly aligned on a uh, clearly prioritised uh, set of um, policy and delivery uh, objectives for the government, and the Treasury should fall into line on that. It will, it will do the Treasury thing, but um, a, a clear programme will, um, will help. On the points about um, uh, churn, uh, you know, absolutely, completely agree that you know, 26-year-old Treasury uh, officials are, are just as annoying to civil servants in um, line departments as they are to ministers. Um, uh, I think one of the things the civil service doesn't do as well as it should is, you know, it's, we've talked a lot about permanent secretaries, we've talked a lot about people right at the centre. The civil service is 490,000 people. Um, it doesn't use the diversity of, there are more, you know, it's got better on gender, it's got better on ethnicity and disability, still not as good as it should be, as Meg said. But there are a lot of diverse skills, experiences, talents um, that the civil service doesn't, it's very bad at organising itself. Um, and I think... Uh, uh, a treasury that was shaken up, yes, in the ways that um, uh, ex-minister therapy have been talking about, but also in a more sort of, you know, in a bureaucratic way, finding that the different people who are there, who have experience uh, on the front line or in uh, 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 sort of core policy departments who are able to uh, 
exert and assert some of that uh, influence with the Treasury would be good. On, the, on Margaret's turnover point, it's about, I think, I'm remembering, I think it's about 25%, which is still very high. It went down a couple of years ago, and we thought this is good, you know, the Treasury is taking this seriously, get, getting a grip, great news. Unfortunately, it looks like that was a bit of a COVID effect, because it's now gone um, yeah. dramatically back up again. Okay, we've got just over 20 minutes left, so I'm going to go out to the audience now. I'll take questions in groups of three. Can I ask you to say who you are, um, where you're from, and can I please plead for people to ask questions rather than give comments just so we can get through as many as possible. Okay, um, starting here. University system. There's no reason for it apart from that's the way that we've always done it. And I think it really shores up class privilege the fact that, um, you know, if you get three A's, you go to one university, if you get two A's and a B, that's another university altogether. And if you get three B's, another university. You know, why can't those three young people study history together? It's bonkers. It happens in our school system. Yeah, I can't. You know, I think what that stratification does is no. Is that coming from somewhere? Some microphones tuned into it. Yeah. Can we just pass the mic to the person next to you, Penny? Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, good evening. Jo I just want to um, ask about the comparison to. Um, I, um, I'm, um, I used to be a councillor. My name's Peter Cookson. I'm from Manchester Gorton CLP. Um, the the thing was that we, 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 we had meetings with the local civil servants and there was one particular one that said, oh, you should spend this grant on this, that and the other. And we're all looking at him going, well, we're the elected members. Um, you know, we're, that's our decision. What the hell are you talking about? And he then moved to departments because he'd been used to in another ward where, where the councillors would just do what he wanted. And I just wondered, given some of the comments that both Margaret and Hillary have made. Have you ever been, were you ever in a position where, where you had a civil servant like that and you've had to say, well, no, I'm the minister, that's my decision, get on and do it? And what friction did that cause if that happened? Thank you. And then one over here at the front. Uh, thank you. Hi, I'm Kayara. I'm a Labour Party member and incoming fast streamer. So thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, pick up on the point on diversity. You've mentioned a lot the importance of diversity and bringing in civil servants. But I wanted to really focus on how we move from just talking about diversity to inclusion um, and how actually when you bring in civil servants that are diverse, what measures can be put in place to make sure that actually they feel supported in that environment? given that it is something that is currently very homogenous. Um, and secondly, if I may, I just wanted to ask Dame Margaret if you could expand a little bit on your uh, proposal, idea, radical reform of um, kind of changing this ministerial code and bringing civil servants in and actually just, you know, what might that look like in a more material sense? Thank you. Thank you. And then one over here. Hi, my name's Reza. I work at Public First, and until last year I was a civil servant for eight years. Um, I suppose you know you encourage civil servants to to challenge. So a sort of a bit of a challenge back on some of the comments that I used to hear again and again from ministers. Firstly, around diversity, which I think is quite unfair actually. If you look at the IFG zone numbers, the fast stream has really improved on all measures of diversity and inclusion, and is substantially better than a lot of other comparable uh, graduate programs. Uh, and do we not want to see? A government where young people want to go and be civil servants. It's really easy to criticise 26-year-olds in the Treasury, but the issue isn't that they're there. The issue is that they're not staying. Yeah. So actually, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and the last thing I would just say is, in terms of then that churn, would you agree that 
there's a risk you go too far the other way because when I joined the civil service in 2013, all the comments were about civil servants that stayed in post for 10 years, that got siloed, that didn't have any vision outside of their particular policy area. So I guess across all of those things, what I'm saying is, isn't there a really, really a danger that we go too far the other way on some of these issues? Thank you. Okay, so we've got, have you ever had to put your foot down uh, with the civil service? Uh, how do you move from diversity to inclusion? Uh, your ideas on the ministerial code, Margaret, and um, is some churn good? Who wants to begin? Alex, so I do diversity, because I agree with a lot of that. I mean, on the point that the civil service has got an awful lot better, particularly on gender in the senior civil service, but also on ethnicity and disability. It's um, uh, broadly at the sort of, you know, the economically equivalent level, but that neglects the fact that quite a lot of particularly senior civil servants are in London, which is different to the... So there's, there are all sorts of things to, you know, places to go on that, but I do think it's, it's worth... I completely agree it's worth recognising the progress that has been uh, made. And as I say, it's about... I think it's about the civil service better using the people who are in and, uh, and keeping them. On your point about sort of staleness, I, I do agree, and certainly work with a lot of civil servants who uh, get... It, you know, uh, Hilary um, mentioned some of the uh, sort of scepticism about... Um, uh, badgers and bovine tuberculosis in DEFRA earlier. I think, frankly, some of that was because people had been in some of those roles for a long time and become sort of almost captured or used to a particular um, uh, sort of conventional wisdom. But I don't think that should stop civil servants having much tighter career anchors. So you're moving, you're keeping fresh, but you are developing your expertise in a particular area. And that's certainly something that I've reflected on since, since I um, uh, left. The final point, and it comes to the inclusion uh, point as well. One of the best things, other than IFG reports, which obviously you're all um, extremely familiar with, I've read about the civil service in the last um, few years is a social mobility commission report called uh, um, Navigating the Labyrinth about social mobility in the civil service. And I read it and I, th and I thought, my goodness, this is the institution that I was part of. It, it brought home to me and it, and it brought home to me some of the things that I had benefited from as a civil servant without even realising it. And I think that kind of holding up the mirror to what the civil service is, using personal stories and combining that with data and analysis is a really powerful way of, sort of the civil service um, uh, reflecting on and improving. Again, all that said, to come back to your point, civil service is way ahead of the curve. I can't imagine a private, I can't imagine you know, McKinsey's commissioning or having, even having the data to do a report like that social mobility commission report. So it's good, but there are so many opportunities to get better. Thank you. Meg, I wanted to come to you on the question of, well, is sunshine good and is there a danger of moving too far in the other direction. Yeah, I think it's got to be a balance. I mean, I, I was a minister dealing with a lot of very specialist areas, so I had a very good relationship with small groups of civil servants who really were world leaders in their field in many cases. I dealt with science, for instance, and they were very expert, and I had to do things like brief the Home Secretary, who would brief the Northern Ireland Secretary on sort of very detailed things to do with forensic science. So I really relied on their detailed knowledge, and you couldn't turn that over regularly. Um, but I think, those, you see, and you do need some of those generalists. The challenge is that the generalist academic uh, policy Mandarin um, it shouldn't be across the whole civil service because the rest of the world isn't like that now. Um, and you don't want to get too siloed into your area of net specialism. But actually what we're not doing is, the civil service is not doing, is promoting people with those specialist skills. So if you've got, if you've got a technical skill, it doesn't help you with your promotion. As Margaret said, this turnover. I remember we had someone when I was dealing with the identity cards and they delivered a project on time and, ahead of, and under budget. 
And so, and then they did a second one. And I said, this is fantastic. I hope you're making sure you're capturing all this knowledge. Yeah, he looked surprised. <laughs> it was quite unusual. Um, and I said, this is really great, you know, and, and what's the next thing? And he said, oh, well, I have to go sideways to get my next promotion, you know, do a different, something different to get my next promotion. And I just thought, what, how ridiculous is that? And, and he, had, was, he was really good. And we all worked, had the privilege of working with great people. I just want to say on the, on the issue about decisions by civil servants, uh, Peter, in answer to your question, I was once told um, uh, one late one evening that the very next day they were going to announce a lot of job cuts in a passport office. I was a passports minister. And I said, what the hell? You know, what, what? And they were no minister, it's not a decision for you, it's a management decision. So, so I, I said, well, hang on a minute. I said, but I've got MPs for a start who are going to be up in arms as they're going to have lot job losses potentially in their area. And, you know, anyway, so, and, and I, I said to them, you've got, you know, so there's a whole political management to this, even if, even if you, even if you say it's a management decision. But anyway, we, we but part after that, I, I, I made sure I always really, I, they got the message to get on to me early about anything so I could make a judgment on it. And then I would also talk to MPs in the area. And one civil servant said to me years later, it was fantastic. I learned so much from you about talking to members of parliament. Because, of course, a lot of civil servants don't meet members of parliament at all. And this case was another, they were talking about closing, it was always about closing passport offices. But, um, and and uh, I got, it was Scottish in Scotland, and I got the MPs in cross-party to sit down with the head of the, the team and they said, but it's fine, this passport office will close, but there's another one very nearby. And the MPs were just demolishing it. We're going, well, yes, but there's a mountain in the way there. So actually, by the time you've gone around the mountain, or, or that one, well, actually, there is no rail line. It's a four-hour drive. You know, anyway, and the civil service were going, wow, oh, we hadn't thought of that. And they had literally sat down. The classic of that was when I was in committee not that long ago, and we have a member, Sean Bailey, a Tory, uh, from the black country. And he was asking about broadband, and he said, so what about broadband in the black country? So the civil servant, with a rather plummy... Uh, London voice said, well, in Birmingham, in Birmingham. And so you get the, the whole committee, Margaret will know this feeling, was like, oh, you know, this civil servant doesn't know what they're saying. Um, and uh, so, so I looked at Sean, and Sean looked at me, and, and Sean said, um, I'm actually talking about the black country, so can you tell me about the black country? The civil servant then persisted with, and in Birmingham, and in Birmingham, you know, by which point there was a crackle around the committee members because we really knew this was sticking in. And then eventually, and I again looked at Sean and said, and sent him a note saying, ask him, what, does he know where the black country is or what the black country is? At which point he really couldn't actually identify where the black country was. Um, and, but that's, I always say to any civil servant when I'm giving any training or support to them, get a map. <laughs> is a good start. But that actually also did it's a bit of a reflection on diversity in, 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 in one of the ways that's missing. Um, Margaret, tell us more about uh, your plans for the Ministerial Code. Ministerial Code. Um, I mean, actually, Meg's example uh, of when she was a minister in the Home Office is a classic example of uh, uh, where if you don't have clear clarity about who is responsible for decision and transparency about that, and then accountability for it, you get in a terrible muddle. And um, at the moment, what the code, civil servants, uh, in talking to you through us, because that's a, all the select committees and parliament is a sort of vehicle for uh, ensuring accountability, civil servants are only accountable to their ministers. So if you ask them, did you advise the minister that this actually was uh, going to double, double the cost that you put in the estimates? Or did you advise it would take two years longer? Or did you advise it was undoable? They can't say to you that they did. And equally, ministers have to take responsibility for everything that happens on their watch. And it's, it, that made sense when that was brought in in 
whenever it was, 19, uh, 19, 19, 19, I think it was brought in after the First World War, and you had tiny little departments, and so it was easy to be accountable for a department of 60, 70 people. Now when you've got God knows how many people in the Home Office, it's absurd to, to seek to think that ministers can be accountable for every action uh, that they take. So that's the problem. What would you do about it? Um, I, you would try and divide what is, ex you know, civil servants are supposed to be executive, ministers are supposed to be policy. It's a difficult division, but you could start with that. So I haven't thought this 100% through, Emma, and if the Institute for Government could do some more work to put total flesh <laughs> on the bone, it'd be brilliant. But, um, I've got a report, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and then I think what you, what you would do is on policy, um, uh, ministers are accountable, but policy advice to ministers ought to be open. I can see no good, the argument is nothing would be written down. Um, and undoubtedly, some things would not be written down. Undoubtedly, there's a little bit of truth in that. But if you had written down the justification for a particular policy, it doesn't make it less political. I don't think local government is, is not political because they have all that out in the open. But it does make sure that you've thought your arguments through and it ought to ensure that we get proper, uh, we get better policy making decisions. So I would open that up so that you could then see, and then the civil servants could go to the select committee or MEGS committee or whatever, and account for the advice they're given. And then on the executive side of things, um, you would then, ministers would not have to take responsibility for the inevitable mistakes that occur, and that are m at the moment, Amber Rudd was a classic example who lost her job. I can't even remember what it was, but it was another Home Office example for something that she hadn't a clue that was going on, uh, uh, going on in the department. And I think if again you could open up, I it's all these words. It's about opening up. It's about transparency. It's about accountability building that into our systems. If you open that up with civil servants having to appear before select committees uh, to account for themselves for the executive action they have taken in implementing a, a policy, I think you would improve the quality of the executive implementation. And one of the fights I had, again, Meg, Meg, Meg might have made progress on this. You only see the perm sec. The perm sec has probably not got much more clue than the, minister, than the minister of what's happening at the executive level. I used to have to fight and fight to get actually the, the project manager, the person in charge of the project, to be the person who would come and account for themselves. Um, you know, to be praised if things had went well. Yeah. And to, we and, and to learn if things had not gone as well. But you, they refused to do it because the hierarchy is so strong that the idea that you could get that level of accountability from lower down as officer, I'm going on too long. Now. I can tell you, but COVID has sped that up, Margaret. COVID sped okay. that up because... We, I, that's the sort of what I'm trying to get at. Have I got dotted all the I's and crossed the T's? No. Is it controversial? Yes. But is it, a, I think, a better way forward? I think we should really give it serious consideration. Hilary, what do you make of the idea of opening up policy advice? Well, I was sitting and, and listening to what Margaret was arguing for. You see, wh where do you have time and space to think? Uh, including thinking in dialogue with your civil servants. Now, 
Um, Why should that be secret? What? Why should that be secret? Well, because you, you, you might ask, well, you know, what are the range of options? And the moment that gets published, government is planning to do this. And you say, no, we're not. We're just looking at the options. But you spend all your time explaining you're not planning to do it because you're still thinking about it. And so I think there, the, the word balance has been used a lot in this. And I think there is a, a balance to be struck. There's also about the timing of when it's released. And it might be released after the event. I think we'd have to think that through. <coughs> Secondly, um, ultimately, you, as a minister, you take responsibility. There was once a case of some computer disks at DEFRA that got lost. I like that. Uh, you remember that, yeah. yeah and um, <laughs> nobody really knew what were on them. Nobody knew whether they had been lists, but they could contain farmers' details. And you remember when Alistair Darling had to stand up and tell people that 21 million uh, child <laughs> yeah. credit uh, recipients' details had disappeared. I found out, because a newspaper found out, I was very cross about that, that I hadn't been told. But when I then told the House of Commons the next day during urgent questions, I thought, better get this out here first before it's in the... Farmers Weekly, publication you've all read, someone said, who's responsible for this? And I said, I'm responsible. Because we have to be a bit careful. If ministers say for the messes, I'm not responsible, it was her, uh, but they bask in the glory of the civil servants' successes, I'm not sure that that is entirely, uh, entirely fair. But to go back to your first question, sir, part of the problem with devolution is the government says we're giving money uh, we're devolving it for this, that, and the other. And then the civil servants come along and attach a lot of strings, which causes the irritation you expressed. And I think the reason for that, in part, is if the spending of the money goes AWOL or wrong, the civil servants will be hauled before the wonderful Public Accounts Committee to be asked, how did you allow this to happen? And I think if you're going to devolve the money, you should devolve the accountability, including the scrutiny for the way it's been spent, to the local authority officials, those who've had it, rather than the civil servants who designed the policy. On putting your foot down, uh, I was once told that something I wanted to do was not core DEFRA business. <laughs> it was a phrase I'd not heard before. And the issue was very simple. A Lib Dem MP wrote to me and said, my constituents served in the Women's Land Army. They've never been recognised for their service during the war. And I said, well, I think we should do something for them. Oh, it's not core DEFRA business, Secretary of State. Well, I said, well, it is now core DEFRA business. <laughs> uh, we're going to have a badge. And a wonderful team worked in an office, and I used to go visit them. And there were these enormous sacks of mail. Thousands of women wrote in to say, I served in the Women's Land Army. Here's a picture of me. Many of them met their future husbands. For most of them, first time they'd been away from home. And they designed, the civil servants, good on them, this beautiful badge. And the first 50 were presented by Gordon Brown at Downing Street, including to the woman the MP had written to me about in the first place, which started the whole thing off. So I suppose that's two sides of it. Uh, once you're clear about what the policy is going to be, then the civil service responded magnificently and it became core business. OK, we've got time for three more questions. Let's make them quick so we can get through as much as possible. Um, one here. Um, this is a quick question. Did Dominic Cummings get anything right about the civil service, leaving aside the weirdos <coughs> and misfits comment? Thank you. And one here. Hi, James Johns from Workday. I'd like to ask the panel what their thoughts are on putting some of the convention-based issues that have been maybe the source of some of the pressure on the civil service leadership on a more statutory footing as a way of preventing that kind of pressure from arising in the future. I'm talking about things like the role of the independent advisor or the implementation of the ministerial code. Thank you. And then one here. 
Hi, uh, Councillor Gumamo from Manchester. Um, uh, just, um, will, do you think with the recent events that uh, civil servants will take on job security rather than take on the politician and say that policy isn't right? Thank you. Okay. Hmm. Who wants to jump in first? So we've got, did Dominic get anything right? Uh, well, I was going to turn the question around and say, did Dominic Cummings get anything right, full stop? <laughs> uh, and I, I think, ultimately, he was a uh, really quite a destructive yeah. force, frankly. And uh, finally, the person who'd employed him recognised that, that, uh, that that was the case. In putting the implementation of various codes and things on a statutory footing, it's a really, really interesting question, because we've seen examples where... Um, you know, it, uh, it seems that a minister did engage in uh, bullying behaviour. The minister said, I really didn't intend to bully anybody, and I'm sorry if you felt you were being bullied, and people said they had been bullied, but the Prime Minister decided he couldn't dispense with the minister, so that was the end of it. Um, now, it's quite a step to say someone else will decide to sack cabinet ministers. Now, that is quite a step. If it's on a statutory footing, then do you bring it within the purview of judicial review? And will the judges end up sacking cabinet ministers? And I think, uh, to be honest, that is quite a tricky question because ultimately it is public opinion, parliamentary opinion, pressure, the media and so on that is usually responsible for sacking cabinet ministers such that the Prime Minister thinks, I really can't hang on to this person anymore because of what's happened. And I'd just be... I'd be a tad cautious about passing that responsibility on to uh, judges or independent people, because then the question will be, well, how do we hold to account the independent person? How do we hold that judge to account? And I don't really want to end up with the American system. Margaret. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I, agree, I agree about Dominic Cummings. Um, <laughs> And actually, he ran Rishi Sunak's campaign, didn't he? So he didn't do very well on that either. But um, um, I think the issue, the issue about the statute, I think that is an interesting issue. Yeah. And the problem is that we're in a position now where there is such a loss of trust uh, in the integrity of all these systems and in, 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 the, in, in, in our probity, our honesty, and uh, in, our, in our behavior. And that goes right through the public sector into into politics. So it's how do you establish trust, re-establish trust, uh, without um, all the uh, downside that Hillary's uh, talked to. And what, what it is, is we need to somehow embed a system which has a separation of responsibilities so that, you know, the prime minister isn't responsible um, uh, uh, for, you know, a choosing or sacking the ethics, uh, the ethics, um, what commissar, whatever that was, and and and, and yeah. I think yeah. his her responsibility. You need to separate that, and if there's a way of separating it without it becoming subject to judicial review, but you can separate the responsibilities so that you build some integrity back into the system, uh, that might be a way forward. And I think probably that's the route I would want to go down. Thanks, Margaret. Meg? Um, yeah, I, I'm nervous, too, about putting things on a statutory footing, because I think... But it's interesting, when we were in government, uh, and ministers were sacked for far, far, far less than this lot have done. And I think part of it is, you know, and Keir 
is an honourable man with a sort of strong code of, of, of conduct. We just need to have really clear rules. Uh, as a, and actually, we need to get this back onto proper territory. Um, uh, and it is about culture. Um, but I think it is, yes, the idea that the Prime Minister can sack his own ethics advisor is just sort of for the birds. I mean, it's nonsense. It's, and, but the thing is, no one ever expected that Prime Minister would do that. I think that's, there was a trust built into the system. Um, on the, on the um, issue of the job security um, uh, issue uh, that the Councillor from Manchester raised, I think there is a real worry here. And as I said, some former permsex are worried that courtesans get in post. But on the other hand, I have seen some of these new civil servants coming in a bit, you know, much less experienced, but quite often still quite strong and robust and, and willing to challenge. But I spoke to one perm secretary um, saying, Who, who's your new minister? And they were, they were in parliament. And so they, they said to me, and look, the, interesting, the revealing comment was, he, he's really nice, <laughs> which I thought was they were relieved that this was the case. Um, but, but actually, what, but if they've got a good relationship with their minister, they can then probably talk truth to power. But if it, all it takes, it, it, I mean, I, I pity you know, Tom Scholar's successor because, well, frankly, there was a vacuum anyway at a time when he really, really didn't need a vacuum. But who was giving advice to Kwasi Kwarteng before his Friday mini budget? I mean, goodness knows. And that's a really difficult position to be in because if they've rejected the advice of your predecessor, you come in. And I have seen civil servants say, with what, just as, as Hedy was saying earlier, you know, what. They're trying to tell you what the, min the minister, what they think the minister wants to hear. When I, uh, when uh, Alan Johnson became Home Secretary, I was on maternity leave. I thought it might be just sort of wise to go in and say hello to my new boss. So I went went in with my my three month old baby, and it turned out that the the, the team dealing with identity cards had understood mind of the minister, the secretary, the Home, Home Secretary, and thought, because he'd made one vague comment about identity cards, that he had a particular view, and they were trying to channel him in this direction. So I went home that night, and when my baby slept, I wrote a detailed paper for the, the then uh, Home Secretary, giving him his options, things that could change, things that he might want to, his, his skill set would really help, things that we could do with we could do with changing things that he had options on, um, and who was in favour of this policy and who wasn't, and where he's you know, so who would he piss off if he made certain decisions and that sort of thing, and that's what he needed because he need, I, mean, I knew what the policy was, but I also knew where he could affect a, a change more effectively. But the civil servants were just assuming that the policy would sort of be reversed because they'd misread, you know, like a raise of an eyebrow almost, and it was very worrying to me. This was actually a group of civil servants who weren't really civil servants; they'd come from the private sector. One had come in and then brought his entire team from a consultancy, so it was quite an interesting, different setup. They weren't really, they weren't long-standing civil servants, and I think that's probably, well, I don't know what Alex thinks, probably partly why that happened. Thanks, Meg. Alex, you get the um, final word. Uh, uh -huh. Did Dominic get anything right? Honour and a privilege. Well, I'll finish on that. I'll do, do that as the big finish. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, on the statute point, I mean, I'm picking up on what uh, Hillary said, uh, uh, as well as uh, others. Um, I think the fact that the civil service code has been underpinned by statute has been really quite important over the last few years. I think the fact that the Civil Service Commission, which... Uh, is the appeal route for the Civil Service Code and the regulator of civil service appointments is underpinned by statute has been quite important. So I think there is a potential role for quite targeted, quite careful statutory underpinning. I think uh, Margaret said earlier, and I was going to pick up on it anyway, actually, right at the beginning, um, the civil service is there to defend democracy. That makes me feel a bit nervous as a former civil servant. I think you, you, there's a risk of putting too much on to the civil service than it can, be, than it can bear if you're expecting the cabinet secretary to uh, stop a prime minister who's determined to do something to do it. 
I, I just don't think the civil service has those levers. But I do think in certain highly targeted areas, some of them are about ethics, some of them are about defining these sort of spheres of accountability that we've been talking about that is a fascinating and impossible discussion. I think you can make some interventions there, but I do think there are costs to it. So I think if you're going to create a sphere of operational delivery for the civil service to be held properly accountable, then uh, it does strengthen the civil service's hand in saying, I'm sorry, that passport office is going to close, Minister. I know you don't like it, but... And, and how do you resolve that in a way that is democratically accountable? And I think those are the sorts of things that are very difficult to, um, to, to resolve. Um, two very quick final points. <coughs> On uh, uh, Dominic Cummings, um, he, I think he, he got the parts of his diagnosis right... I think he identified lack of skills. I think he identified churn and turnover. Uh, uh, but I think, and, and, and any number of areas, I think he got some of the substance and the response right. I heard someone mention ARIA and the sort of science. I think there's, you know, there were all sorts of things where the government machine needed a shove and that Cummings was able to do it. But I don't think he had the whole solution. And I think the way he went about it was undermining, damaging, difficult. Um, if he had identified fellow travelling civil servants who wanted to come up with a proper plan to reform the civil service, then um, he would have done uh, far better. And the final thing I was going to say was, um, Hillary was nice about me earlier, but that woman, Women's Land Army story reminded me of just why uh, working for Hillary was such a, uh, such a fun and engaging and enthusiasm-giving experience as a civil servant. I'm sure the same was true with Margaret and Meg as well, but, uh, uh, but that was a nice reminder. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you very much. I mean, look, I could take at least four more rounds of questions, but sadly we are going to have to um, close the event now. Um, what a brilliant, lively, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to all our panellists, Hilary, Margaret, Meg and Alex. It's And thank you to all of you as well for leaving the Secure Zone and joining us for this. Um, have a great rest of conference or what's left of it. Thanks. Yes, we have to run to the station. Yes, no, good luck. <laughs>